From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Beth Greenman. Today, you'll hear a recap on Ohio University sports for the last week, the story of an annual family reunion with unique roots, and from the director of OU's Women's Center about a recent art exhibit. Um, People have been saying, um, you know, that people need to challenge some of the things that they're seeing represented by these stories. And that is incredible, and I hope that we're impacting people everywhere. We'll give you all the details and more coming up right here on The Outlet. Many families have a reunion each year, but one family in Appalachia was brought together in a unique way. Diamond June has been reporting on the Tabler family. Hi, Diamond. Hi, Elise. So tell me a little bit about who are the Tablers and what's different about them? Um, the difference about the Tablers between them and any ordinary family was that Michael Tabler was a wealthy slave owner and he fell in love with his slave by the name of Hannah and they had six children in the 1800s. And there was also documentation that was found that he had to emancipate his children in 1830 so that um, his father wouldn't sell his children. And around the same time, too, as the kids got emancipated, the Tabler family relocated to Kilvert, Ohio. Wow, okay. And then um, who who's Rose Tabler Burnham? She is um, related to David Butcher, and David Butcher is one of the descendants of the Tabler family. And they are related by, they ended up finding out that they were cousins. And the reason as to why they found out they were cousins was because um, Rose was, I think, checking out a photo and it had a picture of her grandfather and David. And, And in relation, the grandfather to David is David's four great grandfather. And so she went on Ancestry, and which was 14 years ago when she found out that she was related to David Butcher. When she went on Ancestry, she ended up finding out that she had a relation to the Tabler family. And what was her reaction when she found out she was related to David Butcher? She was, um, in the interview with her, she was a little bit surprised because all her life she was told that her, fa- her father was Native American rather than an African-American male. and But you can tell with the interview that even though she was really surprised, she was really happy to actually find that part of her. He said he was trying to protect you because he said, you don't know what we went through. And uh, he said, we had to sit at the back of the bus and we weren't allowed to use the restrooms or anything. And he said, your father wanted to protect you from all that. So what happens every fall? Tell me about how they, they get together every August. So in every August, they come together and they have a family reunion. And um, for this reunion, I ended up checking it out and basically see, like seeing what they were doing and how they come together. And not only it was not only Rose that found out that she was recently related, even though it's not recent because it was 14 years, but there was another family member also as well that found out that she was also related to the Tabler family. But they just come together and just basically like catch up to see what's going on with other like other people's lives and just basically just spend time together as a family. That's literally all that they do. What did Rose say to you about how she feels about the reunion? She feels that it's the reunion is really nothing other than just love. 
It has nothing to do with color. It has nothing to do with race because literally all that it is is just people that love each other and they're coming together to be around each other. That's literally all that it is. To realize that the color of the skin doesn't make any difference in a person. We're all human beings. We're all God's creation. And we all have a soul. What was it like there? Can you can you just describe what you saw a little bit? It was it was very good. It was it was honestly like I feel like it's just like every other family reunion. Like you have like the grandkids coming in, you have like the older generation of people coming in. It was just honestly like I said, just family coming together just to be in each other's space even if it's just for a short amount of time. And then just why do you think that the Taylors are significant? What what makes the reunion important? I think the reason as to why it is significant is because with how the times are right now, it just brings to light that what love can actually do. Unfortunately, Michael Tabler was a wealthy slave owner, but he happened to fall in love with one of the slaves and this is what came out of it so it just shows that love is honestly like the greatest thing that could possibly happen and if we have love in our lives and in our hearts there's nothing that could literally take away there's love basically it's just like love can just conquer hate so that I think for me that's what the reunion is all about all right thank you so much diamond Thank you for having me. And you can read more about the tablers on our website. That is woub.org. Russ Heltman from the radio show Sports Beat is here to recap all things sports last week. Russ, what's the latest in Bobcat football? Well, the Ohio Bobcats opened up their schedule, at least, with a victory over the Howard Bison, 38-32. There was a little bit of a quarterback controversy coming out of that contest as Nathan Rourke was lifted after the first three drives of the game and replaced by Quentin Maxwell, who went on to have a really solid day, over 200 yards through the air, four touchdowns overall, and led the Bobcats to the 38-32 to victory. And, of course, this weekend, right this Saturday, taking on the UVA Cavaliers in Nashville, wondering why that game is not being played at Scott Stadium in Charlottesville. Well, it's because of Hurricane Florence. All of our thoughts, of course, going out to the people being impacted by that storm, but they have moved that contest to Vanderbilt Stadium at the campus of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And to go along with that, Elise, there is all these new things happening at Peden Stadium this season, including the brand new entrance at the Sook Student Center. It's really beautiful. They have a lot of different engaging activities for students and fans. So if you're, if you're an Ohio football, even casual fan, you got to make sure to get out to Peden the stadium. Peden Stadium this season, though. Tongue twisted there a little bit. All right. And uh, OU's volleyball team had an invitational. How are they looking after that? Two and one over the weekend after the Bobcat Invitational were able to pick up victories against Samford and IUPUI. Lost a tough 3 1 contest on Friday against the Virginia Tech Hokies. But it's the last three games coming up of non conference play at the Missouri Invitational this weekend. They're taking on Drake, Missouri, and Texas AM Corpus Christi. Five-day break after that before they start conference play. Kent State, Central Michigan, Buffalo, and Akron all on deck as they finish up their September schedule. 
And the soccer teams are also about to start their conference play. What are you taking away from their non-conference games so far? Well, it was uh, a less less than successful non-conference slate, to say the least. 357 winning percentage, 2-4-1 overall. They got victories against Robert Morris and Youngstown State. We're able to win those contests by a combined score of 7 to nothing. But other than that, it's been tough sledding. Just had their Sunday game against Wright State over this past weekend get canceled. And their next game isn't slated to be played until a week from today, Friday, September 21st. They will start their conference play against Central Michigan. Then they go to Eastern Michigan and come back home for Miami on Friday the 28th to round out the September schedule. The field hockey team has one game left before their conference play. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Two and four in the first two months of the season, Elise. And it's a brand new coach this season for the Ohio field hockey team. So it, it's it's not a lot of high expectations going into this season, but they've they've showed pretty decently. And they're coming off a one to nothing victory over the Appalachian State Mountaineers. So that game actually just ended a little a couple hours ago. Matching up against UC Davis in their final non-conference matchup this Thursday at home here in Athens before they get the conference schedule started against Central Michigan. They have Drexel coming in on the 30th of September as their final little non-conference tune-up after the Central Michigan bout. But after that, <clears throat> Ball State, Ohio State, Longwood, Kent State, Duke, Miami. So this is a team that, unlike all the other fall sports, they have a lot of mixed-in non-conference games to go along with that conference schedule. So if you're in the area, you like some Ohio field hockey, you could get to see some pretty cool teams, including Ohio State, where they're actually taking them on in Columbus. But go see a rivalry up there just a few miles down the road. How, how are they going to be? Uh, and that's on October 7th, Sunday, October 7th. Forgot to date on that. How is OU stacking up against other teams in their conference? Is it going to be a competitive schedule, you think? For the field hockey team? Yes. Yeah, I think they will be a lot more competitive this year. The program's kind of fallen on hard times, haven't really had much success since the 2011 MAC championship, have not been able to get to that level of success since the 2011 season. So I think there will be much more competitive this season, especially with the new coaching staff and everybody new involved with that program. All right. Thank you so much, Russ. And you could tune in to Sportsbeat at Thursday from 6 to 7 at WOUB.org slash listen or on 1340 a.m. Ohio University's Women's Center hosted the What Were You Wearing exhibit, an art installation about the outfits victims of sexual assault wore during their attacks. On September 13th, the last day of the exhibit, outlet reporter Beth Freeman talked to Women's Center director Dr. Geneva Murray about the impact the artwork had had on OU. What was the exhibit about? The What Were You Wearing exhibit um, is a survivor art installation that began at the University of Arkansas and then went viral at KU last year and then again more recently, I believe last April. Um, the exhibit here and replicating the ones that, that we've seen are really focused on making sure that survivor voices are centered and that we are having a conversation not just about sexual violence in regards to this this act of, of sexual assault, but also the questions, the statements, the comments that victim blame, that um, normalize 
and legitimize the act of sexual assault and sexual violence itself. And sometimes people don't make those connections that asking the question, what were you wearing, um, circles this back to the survivor, saying that there was some way that they could have prevented this from happening, that in some way they were at fault. And we really want people to, to flip the script and to start by believing and, and for their first response to really be to support the survivor and to get them connected with resources if they want to be. Um, and so that's really what our exhibit is about. Um, so does the exhibit like change from place to place or does it stay the same and it's traveling? Both and. So um, the exhibit that KU does, I mean, the woman who organizes it at KU, Jennifer Brockman, has just been an incredible person to work with. And so we reached out and we contacted her, and she offered um, for us to utilize the stories that they have already collected. Um, and there are some places that do that. We were fortunate, not fortunate. <laughs> um, we knew that we were going to do the exhibit last October when we were doing the Monument Quilt um, because that was about when it was going viral. That's about when our students were contacting the Women's Center, the Survivor Advocacy Program, and saying, hey, we should do this. And we were like, that's really awesome, but we really need to get through the Monument Quilt first. Um, and then we need like a couple of weeks to sleep. Um, so we knew for a long time that we were going to do this. Um, and so we're able to start planning um, back in back in October we're thinking about the practicalities and how are we going to budget for etc and then we began collecting um, the stories from our survivors that were utilized in the exhibit back in March so from March to mid-July we worked on um, collecting statements and stories from survivors that were here locally so it's our students it's our faculty and staff and it's our community from Southeast Ohio that are represented in the exhibit and I think the thing that's really compelling about it is the way that both um, the, the statements from KU can be used as well as you can create um, your own with the support of local survivors because um, the reality is sexual violence is not something that's unique to Athens, Ohio, Ohio University, the state of Ohio, the nation. It is a worldwide epidemic, and by having the opportunity to see um, exhibits that utilize what KU has offered and creating also their own or whatever, we're, we're seeing the commonalities and the differences between all survivor stories. You know, survivor experiences are not monolithic, and it's really important that we note that. But there's also this common thread that ties us together, and I think that that's what we tried to demonstrate in the exhibit with using teal hangers for all of them and then also having the stories surrounded by um, a teal border is this idea that you know there there is a commonality here as much as our stories differ and the commonality is is that no one was at fault that typically rape culture has allowed for things to happen that shouldn't have happened and it's a call to to action as well in the most simple stories, and in um, and when I say simple stories, I mean you know one person submitted band T-shirt and jeans, and then the longer stories as well are also calls to action. So those similarities and differences are incredibly important, and it's important that we recognize that this is a worldwide epidemic that has gone on for far too long. Hmm. 
Yeah, actually, I looked at the exhibit, and some of the things I saw, it, like, you know, you know that what people are wearing doesn't impact it, but then really seeing it, it like, like the band t-shirt and jeans, it's like, well, how do you with that, you know, once it's, like, right in front of you? Yeah, and I think that that's, that's what's really compelling um, for, for some people who are viewing the exhibit, you know, because we can talk about these things, and I know many people do talk about these things within our classes, right? and we talk about numbers and you know we've had this conversation before when you were covering the monument quilt you know I think that people hear the numbers so often that it just becomes a little bit repetitive and people get a little bit numb to it just like the way that rape culture works generally and I'm not saying numbers are part of rape culture but I I think that we hear jokes so often we hear things said so often that it just becomes part of the fabric and we stop realizing that this shouldn't be our normal things that represent real people right survivors aren't just a number like it's it's real people and it's real situations and anything that represents that realness for people I think can help them reconnect with the reality of why is this still happening and you know we've had people who have gone through the exhibit where they might stop at a particular point because you know, as as human beings, I think sometimes we have to connect personally to something. And, and I think some people who have seen outfits that they have owned or outfits that are similar to things that they wear, that connects it for them in a very real way. And, you know, I'm happy regardless of how people are connecting to it, that people are connecting to it. Getting into the effects of, like, what the exhibit will have, um... What do you think the exhibit has accomplished here at OU? Our goal in all programming that connects in some way to, to sexual assault prevention is to create a culture um, of support for survivors, a culture of, um, of one where hopefully there's lessened stigma. And also, if survivors feel comfortable, hopefully we're also creating a culture of reporting And, you know, survivors who choose to report or choose not to report, it's absolutely and utterly their choice, right? And and either decision is a valid one. What we hope, though, is that if we're seeing numbers increase in regards to reporting, it's not because there's been an increase of sexual assault because this has been happening whether or not we hear about it, it has been happening. We hope that um, that those numbers are reflective of a culture of reporting where people are feeling more comfortable coming forward because it's not just this exhibit. It's ongoing conversations and programming and dialogue and, and social media engagement throughout the year. Mm. Right. So you mentioned that you also had stories from local people in Southeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, how much do you think the exhibit has reached people like outside of just Ohio University? Well, there was a student here at Ohio University who posted about the exhibit on her Twitter, um, and it went viral. So we, we've seen people, like one person post your worldwide now, um, and so forth. And so, you know, I think... Even for those who aren't visiting the exhibit itself, I think the imagery that our students are sharing, but not just the imagery, but the call to actions that go with it. Um, People have been saying, um, 
you know, that people need to challenge some of the things that they're seeing represented by these stories. And that is incredible. And I hope that we're impacting people everywhere. Um, you know, that's the amazing thing about social media is that you don't have to necessarily be in the physical space. Um, and I think that's part of the culture change as well. And I'm really proud of our students who have been engaging with the exhibit online, who have also been engaging with the exhibit in their classrooms and with their, their friends, family members, etc. Yeah. I know one person who was, um, who was road tripping up to see it, um, from several hours away. And so, you know, I think that there's been a, a lot of impact by the exhibit. I know we've talked about like the effects, um, specifically the reaction, and you touched on this a bit already, but... I'm happy to talk about it more. <laughs> um, what has the response been from people who have seen the exhibit? Like, what's been the most common response? So we actually, we do evaluations, and um, I don't know if you want to look at some of them with me. Would that be of interest? Yeah, that'd totally be cool. Mm -hmm. For all of our programs, we try to do evaluations because sometimes we can think that things are, are hitting kind of the objectives that we want or meeting the objectives that we want, um, and we want to make sure that we're doing that. And so, for example, um, as someone who has been sexually assaulted, this shows that even when you're fully covered, people will take advantage of you. This was very touching and also well-needed. Mm. As a survivor, it was empowering and heartbreaking to know that I am not alone. Thank you for curating this exhibit and sharing our stories. And I wanted to say thank you for bringing awareness. This was truly eye-opening. This program has showed me how simple articles of clothing can hold so much emotional baggage and how we need to advocate for assault survivors. I still need to process this exhibit, which I think makes a lot of sense, you know? Um... And some of the ones that have, I think, been been really touching for me, um, in addition to the survivor responses, have been things like, I will be more aware and hopefully be a better bystander. Right. Because there are so many moments leading up to an assault in which people could have taken action, right? Mm. Like, if you hear friends saying things that are demeaning of others, that are objectifying them, um, that are, that are again, doing these, these things that legitimize and justify sexual violence, intervene then, yeah. right? And so the ones where they talk about, um, you know, supporting people, helping them, um, if someone feels threatened, I will help them as much as I can. And these are in response to this question of, you know, what new steps will you undertake, mm -hmm. right? Directly address rape myths and correct those who repeat them. Like, that's the outcomes that we really want to see so that it's not just survivor support, but it's also... It's also about what are we going to do to act stop this from happening. Right. So... You know, the people who say, it made me realize it doesn't matter what you were wearing. It's not about you, it's them. Like, you know, when we get responses like that, we think, like, this is, this is why we do this, right? right? It's not just to empower people, but it is to think about how are we going to change our day-to-day -day behaviors because of this. Mm. And then also remembering that, like, 
we have to keep this conversation alive because are they going to feel the same way five years from now? You know, you always hope that programs will make a difference, um, but I think that until they happen, you, you can't really know, right, mm-hmm. what sort of impact it's had on people. And so it's always, it's always good to see what the response is. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I look forward to the future events about this conversation. Faith Peace Walk is a display of unity and diversity. Here are some of the sounds from this year's event on the Bricks of Athens. Today, we don't live in a world free of violence, but I do believe we still have a choice of the language that we can use as to how we respond to the violence around us, whether it is on a worldwide scale or even right here in Athens. One of the things I love about this Peace Walk is that we all are in it together, step by step. We really do make a difference. I'm here at the walk with my sister and my son. For me, it's all about empowering him and letting him know the the importance of living in peace with everyone around him and knowing what exactly happened even before he was born. (laughs) And want him to be part of that process where He's understanding what happens in the world, but he's also understanding that he doesn't need to be part of the problem, but instead be part of a solution. This beautiful community of Athens, led by this fantastic initiative of UCM, proves day after day to be inclusive of all different groups. The atmosphere created by this community makes these groups feel that they are part of this town and that they are welcome here. Thank you. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The outlet is edited by Atish Baidia, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant, and our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to the outlet on SoundCloud and iTunes, or find us online at woeb.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at outlet underscore woeb, and on Instagram at woeb underscore outlet. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.